She's coming with us to Ethiopia. <laughs> I'm excited. So as Akeen mentioned earlier tonight, we continue our Bible study, this year's Bible study of the book of Genesis. And we begin the portion of that study, which is the story of the deluge. It's a story that begins where you'd expect it to, if you have any familiarity at all with that story. It begins with a man named Noah. Specifically with an astonishing prophecy about Noah, a prophecy on the lips of an unlikely source, Noah's dad, a man named Lamech, who, suffice it to say, epitomizes an advanced state of fallenness in humanity. So in that sense, it's surprising to hear him making this prophecy about the way that Noah will be one through whom the Lord brings relief from the effects of the fall. However, unlikely the source, what Lamech says about his son Noah has a ring of truth to it. And for now, we should simply note that narratively, Genesis singles Noah out. From the very moment of his birth, we as readers were put on notice to expect something from this guy, Noah. After that prophetic aside from Lamech, where he introduces Noah in verse 29 of chapter 5. Verse 30 snaps right back into the mundane record of the genealogy of Adam. And chapter 5 winds down to a close with the names of Noah's three sons. The start of chapter 6 signals a major shift in narrative scope from the genealogy of a specific family, some of whose names we get, it shifts in scope from that specific family and kind of zooms out to take in a view of the generational rhythm of humanity at large. We read in the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land. We're not talking about specific men anymore, but about humanity at large. When man began to multiply on the face of the land. And the way that this very general kind of scope functions alongside of the generational, uh, or the, the specific genealogies that have preceded the beginning of chapter 6, they, they reinforce each other to portray this ongoing trajectory of human reproduction. It's a trajectory that is in which sin and fallenness is inherited, and a trajectory in which the effects of the fall worsen, perhaps incrementally, with each generation. To read the rest of verse 1 in chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Uh, that's how that verse ends. I just um, want to say, I mentioned to a couple people earlier that I had to cut out some of my favorite stuff out of this sermon. And uh, it's all the stuff that, it's all the, the exegetical depth that actually is at stake in the daughters of men um, in this passage there is something deep, I'm just going to flag it for you here though, there's some deep significance here and some really important ways that we might camp out here if we had time tonight to reflect on the significance of women in scripture. Note, for example, that daughters up to this point have mostly gone unnamed in the genealogies of chapter 4 and chapter 5, whereas many of the sons of those genealogies have specifically been named. The daughters, the females have been largely 
anonymous. And in fact, the only two women up until this point who have been named in chapter 4 and 5 in those genealogies are women who are made an audience to the sort of pontification and the sort of brazen speech that Lamech gives uh, to his two wives at the end of chapter 4. And so a thing that we need to admit as Christians is that it's not always super obvious what the status of women is or how fun of a book it is for women to read the Bible. Does that make sense? And yet, we need to be careful to note the subtle ways that Scripture actually is not callous at all to the significance, to the importance, to the, the, the image of God in women, and to the profound significance of the suffering of women. So I'm just sort of flagging that broadly. 6.2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man, of man were attractive, and they took, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, I just want to pause here and note right away um, that in this verse and in some of the ones that immediately follow, it would be easy for us to get bogged down into some stuff that is potentially theologically interesting or maybe biblically interesting, but that is ultimately not that core to the real purpose of what I think this passage is trying to teach, which is to say, for example, that in the difference between the words sons of God and daughters of man, many interpreters, and this has been going on for a long time, it's not like a recent thing, many interpreters have read into that, that sons of God may signify something other than human beings, that there's some kind of weird demigod angels having sex with, with human beings stuff going on here. And I, I wish I could actually dismiss that out of hand. And I want to be honest with you that there is some basis in the text for some of those kinds of interpretations. And there might even be some, some real theological fruitfulness to be gained from exploring those possibilities. Likewise, this word nephilim that we get a, little, a verse or two later here, that's translated in some uh, translations as like giants. If you sort of take those two things and put them together, there's roughly this notion that like angels were having sex with human beings and, and that resulted in there being like giants on, on the loose in the world back in that day. Again, I can't tell you that that's like categorically not a possibility, but it really misses the point of the clear, larger purpose of this passage, which is unambiguously to portray the state of fallen humanity. That's the larger weight of what this passage is about. And so I would argue that even if there is something weird going on with angels and giants here, I would argue that the significance of that stuff is ultimately to shed light and to, and to provide some specificity to the shape of human fallenness. Again, I can't spend a whole lot of time on that. If you want to argue with me about it later, we can, okay? But right now, let's keep going. So rather than getting hung up on speculation, the more important focus for us in this part of the passage is to recognize the portrayal of fallenness and to recognize that what that portrayal focuses on, what it highlights, is agency. It highlights the will, the choosing faculty of creatures. They took as their wives any they chose. Any they chose. That's the verse that I want you to hone in on. That phrase portrays creaturely will as being in some way unchecked. Agency of God's creatures as having overflowed 
its proper boundaries. So what epitomizes fallenness, then, is lawlessness or impunity. It's an unfettered exercise of a corrupted will and desire. Are you tracking with me here? So what we're focusing on here is that phrase, any they chose. That focuses for us what it means for creatures to be fallen. Moreover, that phrase, any they chose, has some really important echoes throughout the Old Testament. And often, as I already started to mention earlier, those echoes specifically seem to hold up the objectification of women as being a kind of um, especially luminous example of the distortion of human will. If you want to see the way that the human will is distorted, the Old Testament seems to recognize repeatedly that one place to really see that clearly is in the way that women find themselves at the mercy of a distorted exercise of male will. Does that make sense? So again, this is, I had like 500 more words of exegesis here that I wanted to offer you right now, and it's really fascinating. I'm going to skip over it, but I'll just mention a couple places you can look. Look back in chapter 4 and notice the fact that Lamech is the first man, that this, Genesis takes the time to, to mention that Lamech is the first man to take two wives for himself, and that Lamech is also unambiguously an exemplar of fallenness, who's just brazenly murderous. And then, if you're brave enough, Read from the book of Judges, chapter 19, to the end of, of Judges. Hear what the book of Judges says at the very end, the concluding sentence of the book of Judges, which reads something along the lines of, in that day, everyone did, there was no king in, the, in Israel, and everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did as he chose. That punctuates a story that is in no small part a story in which male agency radically overcomes and exploits female agency and female flesh. And so it's the degradation of the daughters of men, their radical and shameless reduction to the status of objects at the behest of men that is it's reiterated across multiple Old Testament books as a kind of test case or an epitome for the distortion of the human will, for the way that it's overflowed its boundaries. Now, I do want to be clear here, as important as that is, it is not at all the only place or way that we, that we see the distortion of the human will lamented by the Old Testament. Frequently, that lament shakes out along the line simply of power, frequently economic or political power. So if you want another kind of example, read Psalm 73. And with, where the psalmist is wrestling in his prayers through why it seems to be the case that powerful people who are making use of other people that are less powerful, they seem to act with impunity. They, they live, the psalmist says, and they sort of say to themselves, God doesn't see. They live as if the Lord, they're in no way answerable to the Lord, as if their choices are entirely unfettered from any law outside of themselves. It's in reaction to this state of affairs, the state of affairs described by the sons of God take from the daughters of men any that they choose. It's in reaction to this unfettered exercise of the will that the Lord begins to take steps 
to actively curtail the life and the influence of humanity in creation. So in verse 3, we read, The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. This is another reason, by the way, that I think that this verse is at least more about humans than it is about angels. Does that make sense? Because it's in response to that that the Lord says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4 goes on to reiterate that this turning point where God begins to curtail the way that human damage is running rampant in the world, it reiterates the way that this turning point is characterized by male sexual agency. It not so euphemistically reads, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. It's at that time, again, in response to the proliferation of an unchecked human will that we read in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. Note once more how centrally the the subject of agency figures in what the Lord sees when he sees this virtually ubiquitous corruption in the earth. What's at issue is the choosing capacity. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart, of man's heart, is only on evil continually. That's a problem in the will, in the choosing faculty. So just to reiterate the significance of this phrase, any they chose, that phrase in verse 2 of chapter 6, the will of humanity has become unmoored from the will of God. That's the situation we are going to be seeing God respond to in the story of the deluge. The will of humanity has come unmoored from the will of God. Humanity is acting as if their will is unchecked with seeming impunity. The paradigmatic action of creaturely will, once it has come unmoored from any law outside of itself, the basic shape of that action is taking. It's activities of taking. They took for themselves any they chose. The excess of the fallen will finally, but also almost invariably, stretches out to take hold of other human beings to make them objects and instruments of self-gratification rather than treating them in the image and the likeness of God. It reaches out, the human will finally reaches out in its excess to manipulate its neighbors toward our own selfish purposes. That's, That's what I'm saying is ultimately at stake in that phrase, any they chose in verse two of chapter six. In the face of this great wickedness, of humanity in the earth. Genesis says in verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. That regret is reiterated in the next verse, which goes on to say in effect that God is going to blot out not just humanity, but everything that lives in creation because he's sorry that he has made them. These descriptions of God are arresting, if not outright alarming. And they necessarily resist a too literal interpretation. 
what we mean by the Lord cannot, in a totally uncomplicated way, be reconciled with words like regret if we want to interpret those words in just a simplistically literal fashion. And yet on the other hand, I, just, I do want to admit here that, that the passage dwells upon this regret. And so it absolutely, we are absolutely meant to be arrested by it and to have to wrestle with the significance of the Lord being sorry, the Lord regretting that he has made humanity in the face of all the damage that humanity is wreaking upon creation. But again, rather than get bogged down in theological abstraction and complexity, I just want to point out the way that the story itself disciplines our interpretation of that word regret. Whatever it means that the Lord regrets that he's made man, it has to mean something substantively different than what we normally would mean by that word. Because God's regret in the story results, it leads to, not an abandonment of creation. Rather, God's regret results in a resolve to save creation. God is affected to the quick, moved by the damage of his creation. He is not dispassionately disposed to the world that he has made. He's grieved to his heart and he refuses to leave what he sees that grieves him, this state of affairs, he, he refuses to leave it as it is. So the Lord's regret moves rapidly and irresistibly toward redemption. Or put differently, God's regret has a trajectory. His sorrow is ordered toward salvation. We get the first hint of that trajectory of God's regret moving toward redemption and salvation. We get the first hint of what that trajectory is going to be in the very last verse of our reading tonight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And already... Even if we didn't know the rest of the story, just the way that verse reads, we already have the beginnings of, 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 a, of a sense that like this story is not going to be determined by oblivion. It's going to take a different turn away from that ever-increasing genealogy of destruction. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What does it mean? that Noah was seen by God in that way, that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We have relatively little detail about Noah prior to his commissioning by God and even after his commissioning by God. Relatively de little detail about what it is about the life he was living prior to this moment that we see God seeing him. Relatively little detail about what it is that God finds favorable. And so we've got to do some some patient interpretive work here. The fact is, in fact, that as of now, we have no detail. The only thing we know about Noah is that he's favored by God. Next week, as we continue our reading, we'll get a little bit more description of Noah. But the upshot there will be essentially the same as the upshot is here, which is that Noah is a radical minority report. 
He's an astonishing exception to the trends of his time. So to begin with, what we know about Noah and of God's favor toward him is very general. It's that God's favor demarcates a substantial contrast between Noah and what Jesus later would call the adulterous and sinful generation in which he lives. If it's the uncurbed exercise of a distorted will that characterizes that generation, that is the defining feature of the wickedness of man, if it's people taking for themselves whatever they chose, then we can probably infer already that what's going to be different about Noah is what he does with his will, is how he exercises his agency, his choosing faculty. It's Noah's passivity, actually. His passivity in comparison to the choices of the sons of God in verse 2, that's, that's the content of the contrast. And it's the thing that's instructive to us tonight. While most of humanity is characterized by the unfettered exercise of their will, taking for themselves whatever they choose, Noah's life is defined not by his agency, but by God's. Before Noah does anything, Noah is found. He's seen by the Lord. You might say that like the first time that Noah appears on the narrative landscape, he's still. And the, real, the thing that we see is God seeing him. And so it's not his agency that's at the fore, right out of the gate, but the Lord's. Before Noah does anything, he's found. God sees him. The Lord comes to him. And it's the Lord's purposes and plans, not Noah's, that are going to determine the shape of his life, the shape of his work, the shape of his future. What that means is that the Lord's favor for Noah, it points to Noah's availability and to Noah's submission to the Lord's will, his availability to God's will and his submission to the Lord's purposes. The significance of God's favor toward Noah in Genesis chapter 6 is revealed even more completely in our gospel reading from the beginning of Luke. And indeed, it's only in Mary's child, Jesus, that Lamech's prophecy about Noah actually finds its fulfillment one day way in the future. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and what he says about Mary is that she's favored. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. If, just in case we missed that word, a few verses later, Gabriel repeats it. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. This is not an accidental coincidence in the grammar of Scripture, all right? Gabriel goes on to explain, you're going to give birth. In short, he says, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. Mary understandably replies, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And what happens next between Mary and Gabriel, or really Mary and God, it provides the sharpest contrast possible to what we read in Genesis 6-2 when we read, and they took for, as their wives any that they chose. 
Whereas in Genesis 6, the sons of God enact their will upon the daughters of men. In the Gospel of Luke, the Lord waits upon Mary's answer, upon Mary's reply to his invitation. Mary reveals even more clearly than Noah that God's favor comes to us as an invitation, an invitation to participate willingly, willingly, in God's mighty acts of salvation. God's favor presents us with a choice to collaborate or not to collaborate with God in his ongoing redemptive purposes in the world. Whereas the fallen human will bends itself toward activities of taking, Mary shows us that the paradigmatic response to the Lord's favor is giving. In response to God's summons, Mary gives herself, she offers herself to the Lord. Rather than live as the doer, as the primary agent of her own life, instead, Mary offers herself as the site where God's will can be done in the world. She says, let it be done to me, to me, according to your word. And note that when she says that, it's not a relinquishment of her will, but an exercise of it. She's making a choice, but it's a very interesting and redemptive choice. She's exercising her will, but the choice she's making is the choice for her will to become a vessel for God's will. For her life to become a vessel for God's mighty acts of salvation. And I don't know if you noticed what I did there with that word, but I choose that word vessel advisedly. What's going to happen with Noah's life? As he lives in response to the Lord's invitation, God's going to use his life to make a vessel of salvation for all of creation. That's what's happening with Mary as well. Being found by the Lord's favor, then, is largely a matter of what we do with our will, of choosing to be responsive to God's will and purposes rather than living only or solely being steered and governed by our own will and purposes. In the same way that fallenness is a matter of choice. They took any they chose. A matter of a distorted exercise of agency. So too, finding the Lord's favor is a matter of bringing our will into conformity with the will of God. Choosing to offer ourselves to God's purposes. How do we do that? I have two very broad and kind of overlapping answers. The first really broad way that we can do it is, uh, is to hold our plans lightly. To hold our plans lightly. And I've got two subcategories here. Holding our plans lightly has to do with both our priorities and our prayers. Look at all this great alliteration. Plans, priorities, prayers. Anyway, so holding our plans lightly Probably our attachment to our plans, so this is the priority section, 
probably our attachment to our plans, maybe more than anything else, or maybe most consistently, our attachment to our plans is the thing that makes us callous or deaf to the invitations of God's favor. Just to be clear, we can't avoid making and pursuing plans of some kind. But we need to be honest about whether we've structured our lives in such a way that the Lord's will and plans and purposes have any room to gain a purchase on ours. Have we ordered our life in such a way where it's a real live possibility that God could correct or change the course that we would otherwise choose for ourselves? And I mean, we don't have to live our lives as being like, like being open to God changing the course. He can change it anyway, but we also can decide in the, in the way that we structure our life priorities to deliberately leave room for God to interrupt our plans on purpose. God's favor is not likely to find you and not as likely to find you if you're so busy running down the path that you've already mapped out for yourself. Our plans almost always proceed along lines of control and of predictability and of the way that this step leads to this step to this and, and, and then the next and finally to the destination that we're trying to get to. But the Lord's favor pulls us forward into the darkness of uncertainty, into the darkness of our own ignorance, out beyond the feeble circle of light that we try to cast forward into the future. Our attachment to our plans, it proceeds from the delusion that if we're going to have life, that if we're going to have the good things that we think we have to have, then we're going to get them by taking them. We're going to get them ourselves through our own designs. The problem is that so often we want the wrong things. Not everything we want's wrong, but frequently we want the wrong things. And perhaps even more importantly, we recognize that most, if not all, the best things in our lives aren't the results of our plans. Like, just take inventory. Really, at some point in the next week, take an honest inventory of the best stuff that's happening right now or that has happened to you. And I'm not saying none of them will have anything to do with stuff that you've tried to do or planned, but I bet you anything that, that most or all the best ones will have occurred, will have come to you from outside of your plans and your designs. In my own life, I can attest to the fact that all the best stuff came from outside my effort and sometimes even in spite of my effort and my plans. Over the years, I've watched a lot of students refuse to be moved by God again and again. And the reason they did that is not because they hate God or anybody else, but it's just because they're deeply attached to their plans. I also just want to say I can recognize that because I've also seen God with so many students take them someplace they didn't plan to go. In big and, and also very large sort of scopes of their life choices. I've seen it go both ways, but when it goes the way of refusing to be moved by God, 
it is frequently because being moved by God conflicts with our plans. Because following God's lead would make it harder to see how a college student can get from here where they are to there where they're trying to go. So reasons that people are less available to the, to the direction of God than they ought to be, they're rarely because they're trying to grow up to be the next architect of the genocide, of, of a genocide or something. It's because, instead, it's because they think that for the fulfillment of their plans to take place, that they have to be an officer with the union board, which meets on Tuesday evenings. Or they have to be a part of a leadership position in a professional, prestigious um, society of some kind that's going to lead to all kinds of new connections and look really great on their resume. And also that that happens to be profoundly demanding on their time. Or simply because they're so preoccupied with eking out just one more decimal point of GPA through avoiding any commitment that might curtail obsessive academic perfectionism. All those things that I just mentioned, like membership in an organization like the union board or some kind of a professional society or trying to have the best GPA you can through academic perfectionism, I just want to admit to you that all those things are way more straightforwardly useful in acquiring your plans than God's will is or seems to be at least. All those things are way more straightforwardly useful in acquiring your goals than, for example, making a firm commitment to come to worship every Tuesday evening and small group every Thursday or Monday. Those things, worship, commitment to it, commitment to really being a member of the body of Christ, really might practically get in the way of the stuff you're trying to get. It might. It at least makes it harder to see, I admit. But my question is this. Are you more likely to hear God's summons at worship or at the union board meeting? Are you more likely to find yourself addressed by the favor of the Lord in the library or in your small group? And at this point, I can imagine people silently replying, well, you're limiting God. Of course God can talk to you in the library. Of course God could say something to you in the union board. And to that, I just want to say, shut up. <laughs> Let's not pretend. Of course, I know that. But for a fact, the purpose of Christian worship, of a gathering like this one, the purpose of it is to bring you wakefully into the presence of the living God, to direct your attention to God's word, to feed you bodily and in every other way with the very gift of God's own son. And for a fact, that is not the purpose of the union board meeting. They may have some great purposes, but it is not to bring you wakefully into the presence of the living God. That's not the purpose of Nesby or the Concrete Canoe Club. I don't know if I actually know what this is what they call it. Or any number of other things that might really be demanding and also sexy on your resume. All those things are fine. I got nothing against any of those. I sort of have something against the union board because it bothers me that it's on Tuesday. But besides that, I got nothing against that stuff. But it's a fact 
that everybody's got to make choices about their priorities. You can't do everything. I've tried. I, I, I try all the time, actually. But you can't do it. And choosing things that are fine is not fine if those choices are part of an essentially selfish life project. Maybe more directly, God is mostly a gentleman. He waits on Mary's answer. Usually he's not going to force you to listen. Which begs the question, how much of your actual schedule is devoted to the Lord's presence? Where do you go and how often do you go there to wait upon the Lord, to be seen by him and to be found by him? That was the subheading of priorities. Relatedly, prayers. Who's doing most of the listening when you pray? When you pray, whether it's corporately, but I'm especially sort of thinking, assuming you have some kind of a regular, hopefully daily practice of praying, coming into God's presence. When you pray, who is doing most of the listening in your prayers? Are you primarily coming to God with the aim of being addressed by him? Or are you primarily coming to God in order to speak to him in essentially the same way that you would a life coach? Or Santa Claus? There is a way to pray. I mean, I'd rather you pray to him like Santa Claus than not at all. So that, you know, you're not going to hell if you're doing it that way. But what I, want to, what I want to point out to you is that there are ways of praying that deliberately imitate Mary's words, let it be to me according to your word. There is such a thing as a life of prayer which firstly and most deeply is a practice of listening, of stillness, and of waiting to be addressed. Do you pray primarily, let's say you use the Bible when you pray even, you're a real good Christian. The Bible's involved in your prayer. But when, when you open the Bible, are you reading it primarily as a plunderer of God's word? Do you think that the purpose of reading scripture is to like wrench your life hacks out of it? Under whatever description you, you give that, are you plundering God's word? Are you trying to lay hold of it? Are you being someone that tries to do something to the Bible or with the Bible? Or is you opening, are, are you opening God's word, seeking to be one upon whom the word of the Lord acts? Gotten a hold of by the word of God. When somebody's doing that, it's a relatively silent and seemingly passive thing that they're doing. Largely a practice of listening. Okay, here's the second big category of what we can do in order to be uh, living in response to the Lord's favor. We can practice selflessness and self-sacrifice. Good old selflessness. That's, that's item number two. Another way of thinking about this is that we can do everything we can to find out how to give ourselves as offerings, how to live our lives as a gift, as an offering. Selflessness and self-sacrifice. Doing the will of God, like what it means for a person, for a Christian to do the will of God, 
it can take myriad forms. It would be impossible for me to, to like exhaustively sketch out for you even the basic parameters of what that's going to mean for every single person's life. Like it is in some ways very wide open. It can take myriad forms what it looks like to live your life in concert with the Lord's will instead of just being steered by your own. There might be vast variance from person to person, from Christian to Christian. And yet there are also some universals some things that will absolutely always be the case in every instance, no matter the other variance that is there. Some universals to what it means to do the will of God for every person who proposes to do that. One thing is, for, is certain for all of us. For every one of us, God's will is a cross. For every one of us, the shape of God's will in our life is going to be the shape of of the cross. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, anyone wants to be my follower, that person will have to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Anybody that wants to save their life is going to lose it. And anybody that loses their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel is going to save it. That is the case for everyone. What it means to do the will of God is self-sacrificing. It's the shape of the cross. God's will will always be a matter of finding our life by losing it, of denying ourselves for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. God's will for us is I know this is really simple to hear me say this. It's not for us. Like, it's not for our life to be for us, but to make our life be for him and for others. So there are a ton of things that a Christian is allowed to do. It's not really, it's not, this isn't really a question of like, what are we allowed to do, right? But for every Christian, here's the test. The body of Christ needs to be able to look at your life with the gospel in hand, and to look from the pages of the gospel to what you're doing and to what it seems that you are pursuing. And we need to be able to look at what you're doing and what you're pursuing and be able to truthfully say, that person is losing her life for the sake of Jesus. That needs to be a truthful description of what every Christian is doing. We need to be able to look at what any Christian is doing with their calling and their career and everything. And we need to be able to look at that whole picture and say, that person is giving his life away to God by giving himself to the world in a way that looks like Jesus giving himself to the world. One of the most persistent and endlessly mutating lies that we face it never stops being a lie that we're facing, is the lie that we can have life without taking up our cross. That's the lie I think we face maybe more persistently than any other. The lie that we can have life without dying to ourselves. That the way to live life to the full is to live life in pursuit 
of our own happiness and our, and our own pleasure. That what God really wants is our safety and our prosperity and our comfort and our ease. And therefore, God blesses us. He pats us on the back for so responsibly devoting our energy to getting all the things that we want and all the things that we need. The truth is, instead, God's favor comes to us as an invitation to participate in his redemptive purposes. And those purposes are always far greater than the tiny scope of our own little needs and wants. And they always, we always enter into them by making our lives a gift, by making our lives an offering. That word sacrifice, what it really means is an offering. It means entrusting something to God, believing that he is going to make something of it that's more than what we can do ourselves. It's entering into a kind of economy with the living God. And absolutely sacrifice might and will, at least in some facets, entail pain and suffering. But that's not what it is at its core. I mean, to do it, you've got to be willing to suffer. But what I want you to recognize is that what's promised in that life of sacrifice isn't just this like stoic, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like do this because that's what God said. There's a promise of life in it. This is what's going to make you alive, Jesus says. Is to offer your life like I'm going to do it on the cross. During this season of your life, are you just learning how to become a member of the upper middle class? Just heads up. If you don't, if, if you don't like take some deliberate action, that's what it is that you are default trying to do as a person in America going to college. You're trying to become a member of the upper middle class someone that makes in excess of a quarter of a million dollars of a year, whose kids don't have to worry about all the vulnerabilities of anybody below that line, okay? In round numbers, that's what you're doing if you're not trying to do something else as a college student. In this season of your life, are you just learning how to become a member of the upper middle class? Or are you instead deliberately trying to become more selfless? You could do that too while you're in college. You could, you could remember that you're a Christian, most of you, which means you're supposed to be learning how to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. And guess what? At least for me, I don't just already know how to do that. I don't want to do it a lot of the time. It's not clear to me a great deal of the time that that's going to lead to my happiness. So it's going to take some learning and some practice. So you can use this time that you're here to learn how to become more selfless? Are you using these years that you're in college to practice the skills of making your life an offering and a gift? Well, here in a second, we're going to come to this table and take communion. And uh, I've noticed, and it's become somewhat of a topic of conversation this year, that people are somewhat frequently freaked out by uh, the actually extremely ordinary and 2,000 millennia attested practice of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Notice that, that, that wakes some people out. It's happened a lot. And it's easy to think, 
and I'm sure it partly is, it's easy to think that people's aversion to, uh, to the celebration of communion, to what we're about to do around this table, that that aversion, the way that, that Christians get skeezed out by it, that it's like a theological aversion, you know? That it's a, a kind of a worry about like, it sounds like they're saying that that's really Jesus's body and blood. And just for the record, we're not saying it. That's just what the Bible says, okay? And we are literally just singing and praying what the Bible says at this table. That's what we're doing, okay? But anyway, that's not the main point I'm trying to make here. It's easy to think that that's what people are freaked out about. And I'm sure that that's part of what it is. But I think in light of our readings from Scripture tonight, it might be even more basic than that. Because this table is a place where we are seen by the God who saw Noah. We're greeted at this table by the same God who said to Mary, Greetings, O favored one. Which means this is a place we practice postures of responsiveness to the Lord's will. Where we learn how to turn our lives into a gift where instead of struggling to be more and more and more in charge of our future, we're learning how to entrust ourselves to God. It's a place where we offer ourselves, we say, in the words of the book of Romans, as a living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. And so maybe that's what the aversion is about. And if that's what it is, I get it. I get that aversion. I struggle most days, to believe that the way I'm going to be all the way alive is by offering myself as a living sacrifice. Heck, even Jesus didn't just uncomplicatedly want to die. And yet, he chose to be a sacrifice when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And by so doing, he made himself into the gifts of salvation we receive in this moment.